Hail Traveler, and welcome to another magical episode of this D&D-focused podcast, where I share all the tidbits I have to offer on immersive play, story-focused campaigns, and character-driven sessions. And speaking of magical episodes, this one will be particularly so, because I'm spending the next 30-ish minutes talking about exactly that. Magic. I'm putting a spell on you, Alan Niles, and this is Outside the Dice. Now, before we go any further, I guess I should probably disclaim that I'm actually not the biggest fan of magic. I don't mean that I don't like the possibilities that magic itself can introduce. If we're going to play in a magical world where we slay dragons and undead skeletons and beholders, then yes, of course I would love to summon a storm of fire with a crystal orb. That sounds dope. What I mean is I don't like the idea of any situation being solved with no explanation further than poof. I do the magic. I like to get in depth and know the workings behind things, and magic can sometimes be written off in that way. Wizards has done great work of stating what components a spell requires, what level the caster needs to be, if it's spoken or requires hand gestures, area of effect rules, saving throw rules, ranged and melee spell attack rules, so many rules! But what I'm interested in are the rules within the context of the world. When I run my campaigns, I am as meticulous as possible in figuring out exactly how each dungeon or trap or any piece of that session operates, so I know exactly how it can be interacted with if a player chooses to do so. That goes for if I homebrew the material myself or if I'm using pre-existing material but it's just not specified for one particular thing. I want to be sure that I've decided how this thing works. For example, in one of my campaigns, um, I wanted to have a trapped chest in a dungeon. I could have just decided that the chest needed an investigation check to find the trap and a check to disarm. Uh, otherwise, it's a dex save to avoid a fire explosion. Instead, I designed exactly how that trap worked. I decided that the lid of the chest was connected to a taut wire, which it was connected to a piece of metal. And as the lid is lifted, the metal acts as a strike, setting aflame the inside of the chest. The inner lip of the chest is laced with something flammable like black powder or oil, and snugly inside sits a compartment with enough oil or powder to blow up any would-be burglars. There's a keyhole on the side of the chest which deactivates the trap immediately by allowing the wire to run along a retractable mechanism within the chest rather than pulling the taut strike. Now listen, I, I'm not an engineer so I have no idea if this would practically work, but I'm going to decide that that's enough detail for a booby trap chest and call it. And that's a lot of work to put into something that will probably just explode because your players love and trust you so much, but it gives you an answer to a lot more questions your players might ask. Like if they say, I put my ear to the chest, do I hear anything? You can say no, but you smell the sharp odor of black powder. 
I run my hands along the side of the chest. Do I feel anything? Yes, you find a second keyhole. Uh, I lift the lid of the chest half an inch to peek inside. Is there anything suspicious? Yes, you spot a wire inside the lip of the chest pulling tightly against something else inside, but you can't quite make out what it is. Having those details opens up more possibilities for players to actually interact and overcome obstacles than simply basing pass and fail off of a dice roll. With magic, I feel that the tendency or temptation is to just leave it at that. You could create the same booby-trapped chest as before, but instead of all the practical and mechanical aspects, you replace it with just a magical ruin. And when your players say, how exactly does this trap work? You go, uh, well, you know, it's magic. You see, I like to know how things work. I like things I can observe and examine. I like tangible things I can play with. As far as I know, Wizards hasn't gone so in-depth that they describe magic narratively, aside from the couple sentences of flavor text that they have with each spell. So it is up to the DM to decide how they work narratively. Say the chest is trapped with a glyph of warding. Glyph of Warding is a spell that has a ton of mechanical details, but again, not much description if a player wants to interact with it. It does state that the glyph is nearly invisible and requires an investigation check to find, but what happens after a character succeeds their investigation? What things do they observe? Do they hear the faint yet recognizable low hum of the glyph? Do they notice a soft red pulsing glow? Do the hairs on the back of their arms rise up as they trace their hand against the surface? These are all the details possible and available when working with magic, so get creative when deciding that something functions because it's magical, and avoid the temptation to stop working there. But this episode is not just about my nitpicky desires with world design. I want to discuss broader strokes. I want to talk about how the characters in your world cast their spells. The Spell Casting Classes of D&D There are many to choose from, whether you consider the core casters like wizards and sorcerers, mixed casting and melee classes like rangers or paladins, or supplemental subclasses like Eldritch Knight and Arcane Trickster but they all have something in common. Their ability to cast spells is linked to one of the mental attributes, wisdom, intelligence, or charisma. So if the classes all cast from one of these abilities, how are they being differentiated from one another? I think this is definitely not work that should just fall solely on the DM. I think that it should be a collaborative effort between the DM and the players. If a player has a cool idea on how they would manifest their spells and it doesn't change anything mechanically, consider adding it to the world. If you and your players are stuck, though, I've got some general ideas to help get you started. Up first, let's address the mind, intelligence. Intelligence is linked to the spellcasting abilities of the Eldritch Knight Fighter, Arcane Trickster Rogue, and the Wizard. The description for why this is says the power is drawn through dedicated study and memorization, though the PHB only includes dedicated for Arcane Trickster and Wizard, so 
I guess Eldritch Knights are consistently just half-assing it when it comes to spellcasting. What this tells me though, these three classes drawing upon intelligence to cast their spells is that there is a direct connection from the material world to the well of magic that exists within that universe, whether you decide that to be the weave or something else in your own campaign. There is a proper way of connecting to that well of magic, and that way has been discovered and recorded and eventually studied by the character in question. There is a scientific method and quantifiable way of drawing on that magic. Obviously, there isn't only one way to cast spells though, since we still have charisma and wisdom to explore, but whatever method has been discovered and recorded and passed down seems to be pretty reliable. Anyone can put a table together eventually, but the wizard just carries around the Ikea pamphlet everywhere they go to make sure they're doing it right. Narratively, if your NPC or player character draws on intelligence, that might be a wizard flipping through the pages of their spellbook to remember the proper incantation or hand movement. An eldritch knight doesn't have the repertoire of a wizard and doesn't carry a book of spells around, but they've still memorized a handful of spells, and they probably perform them in a very formal way. An arcane trickster is just a rogue who has stolen so many material goods that they've moved on to stealing immaterial goods like people's hard-earned knowledge of spells. <laughs> they're, they're basically just a few tentacles short of being considered mind flayers. An arcane trickster has seen a spellcaster cast a spell and then worked hard to memorize the proper gesticulation and password to recreate it. Describing them casting a spell might be something like the rogue trying desperately to recount the spell while banging their head against a wall, getting it right just in the nick of time. Uh, it was uh, the left hand. No, no, my left, his right. Right hand goes up, flicks it down. Wait, no, flick left, then down. Igna! For those spellcasting classes that are a little less studious than those who draw on intelligence, well, good thing they look cute, because we're moving right along to charisma. Classes that draw spellcasting ability from charisma are the Bard, Paladin, Sorcerer, and Warlock. The description for why that is typically say something along the lines of believing really hard. The Bard gets their power from the heart and soul that they pour into the performance of their music or oration. Paladins, the strength of their convictions. Sorcerers, the ability to project their will into the world. There actually isn't anything specific stated under the Warlock spellcasting ability, but in the general text for Warlocks, it speaks of arcane study mixed with a patron bestowing power. Narratively, these classes are speaking power into existence. Wizards know and practice the special words and finger waggles to shoot lightning bolts out of thin air, but these classes didn't study anything to gain their power. It comes from the character's spirit, or faith, or emotion that they feel. I know I just referenced this in the previous episode, but Steven Universe is a great example of a sorcerer. When mechanically playing a sorcerer, you can just pick what spell to cast, but narratively... Sorcery could be portrayed as totally unreliable. Trying to cast one spell and accidentally casting another, or 
only casting spells when fueled by strong emotional responses. Paladin's abilities are a bit less random, but not because a paladin is totally in control of when they cast a spell. Their faith is not placed in magic, but in the strength of their god or gods, or of their order's oath. Yes, the player chooses when to use smite, but I don't think that the paladin knows that. I think the paladin is just screaming, BE GONE! at the enemy with so much conviction that the magic pours through. Warlocks are pretty interesting, because the PHB states their magic comes from a mixture of arcane study and receiving that power from another otherworldly being. That pursuit of knowledge makes me think of wizards, but it's to this crazed and obsessed level. It's a combination of a wizard's studious devotion and a paladin's faith, but the faith that the warlock has is a little bit more twisted. Warlocks gain access to these different packs. Pact of the Chain grants a familiar to the warlock. But who is the one who is truly chained? Is the familiar chained to the warlock, or is it the other way around? Pact of the Blade grants the warlock a weapon, but does the character summon the weapon in response to danger? Or does the weapon summon itself when it wants the character to act violently? Pact of the Tome grants knowledge in the form of a shadowy book, but this doesn't change the Warlock's casting ability from Charisma to Intelligence, which means the teachings in this book have nothing to do with knowledge, and have to do more with their patron's will. What I'm getting at is, when a Warlock casts a spell, are they enacting their Charisma? Or is their patron simply enacting their own will through the character like a puppet? Quite the wise query to ponder, no? Wise enough to act as a segue into wisdom as a spellcasting trait? My lazy writing team has informed me that yes, yes it is. Wisdom is used for the classes Cleric, Druid, Ranger, and Monk, if only by a technicality. The reason stated for each has to do with devotion. Devotion to a cleric's deity, devotion and attunement to nature for the druid, and just attunement to nature with no devotion for rangers, which tells me that by wizard standards, rangers are just lazy druids. Nothing is stated under spellcasting in the PHB for monks, because technically they don't cast spells, they channel their key, which in some cases can be used to cast spells, and under key, a monk uses wisdom for saving throws. The casting of magic through wisdom seems very similar to casting through charisma, but I think there's a key difference here. Charisma seems to be tied to emotions felt about something outside of the character, whereas wisdom seems to be cast by feelings within the character. A monk dedicates their life to a monastery in training to achieve a greater inward understanding, but is able to channel that experience on command when a threat presents itself. A druid who is devoted to their land and its animals channels their attunement to change shape or call upon the powers of nature. A cleric's faith and devotion to their gods allows them to stop threats that oppose their gods' beliefs and ideals. A ranger's attunement to nature, but also their devotion to the balance between civilization and nature allows them to call upon the powers of the multiverse to sustain that balance. While channeling charisma into magic is felt, wisdom is just understood. 
It's an inner calm and control and peace that grants spellcasting power. Even though there is absolutely nothing peaceful about tearing a pack of goblins apart with the radiant scorch of a moonbeam, but what are you gonna do? The differences in how spellcasters draw on their magical energies are going to be subtle between one another, but focusing on where that energy is drawn from can have a lasting impact on the campaign, especially if you're consistent with those ideas. Making all the wizards in your world cast similarly to one another will give a cohesive feel to your campaign, but if you want to make a particular NPC stand out, or a player has a neat idea on how they'd like to cast spells, consider making that character an exception to the rule. For instance, say you have a wizard, but you don't want to have them be the standard robe-wearing Merlin wizard archetype. This wizard wears gear that looks a bit more practical for an adventurer, and more akin to traveling clothes than a pointy hat and matching star-adorned robe. At a glance, this wizard looks almost like a mercenary, and might have a bow uh, and quiver of arrows. The way this wizard casts their spells is by shooting arrows that have arcane ruins carved into the arrowhead or shaft. A wizard typically regains their spell slots after a long rest, so this wizard mercenary spends their long rest carving ruins into their arrows. The bow acts as their arcane focus, and the spells are cast as normal, so no bonus damage for the physical arrow itself hitting a target. Also, the ruins are not the only ingredient that makes these arrow spells possible, but simply act as a sort of primer. The wizardcenary firing the arrows themselves infuses magic into the shot, so no passing off magic arrows to the ranger and fighter to spout off 10 fireballs per encounter. If the spell is a touch spell rather than melee, give them a glove or pair of brass knuckles with similar runes carved upon the knuckles. Changing the aesthetic of this wizard doesn't change a whole lot mechanically, if anything at all. It just requires some creative solutions to some of the spells. If the spell is something like Prestidigitation or Mage Hand, maybe the Mercenizard performs it normally, but a lot of spells could be given fresh and imaginative descriptions. Casting Darkness wouldn't just be a black void poofed out of nowhere, but an arrow shot into the center of an open field bursting into dark, smoky tendrils that grow into an area of darkness upon impacting the ground. An arrow might have bright red and orange feathers for fletching to signify that it's inscribed with a fireball spell, and tiny embers spark off the bowstring after the arrow is loosed. Ask your player if they have any specific ideas for their character. It may be unorthodox, but exploring character aesthetic could end up creating some awesome, vibrant visuals. Now, I'm not saying to entertain every idea a player might suggest, because players can come up with some wild ideas. But my thoughts on the matter are generally, if it doesn't affect mechanical rules, and it jives with the setting that you've created, then why not? This can work on a much larger scale as well. If you're looking to create a campaign that is not set in your usual high fantasy, western European medieval setting, Aesthetic can most likely be tweaked to accommodate that idea. 
In a sci-fi setting, magic can largely be replaced with futuristic technology. Believe it or not, Iron Man is a fantastic example of wizard in this sense. Let's see, his suit is his arcane focus, Jarvis is his spellbook, and the suit's energy capacity acts as his spell slots. And Stark's spell casting ability hands down has to be intelligence, so all boxes checked. Or maybe you don't want to totally rework the magic aesthetic, but want a different setting. Your game could end up looking like Final Fantasy, a mixture of modern technology and ancient magic, fireballs and gatling guns used on the same battlefield to take down dragons and helicopters and giant robots. Magic could still exist largely in the way it's traditionally used and imagined, but there could be other more technological ways of performing different magics, dependent on the spell, the magic school the spell belongs to, or the character class that is casting the spell. Maybe wizards do look like a bunch of Merlins and Gandalfs, but warlocks look like mechanical abominations with all kinds of deus ex-style augmentations. Now the goblins can't decide if they're more afraid of the wizard summoning a firestorm like Dumbledore, or of Robocop Murphy, the warlock, taking his pistol out of his thigh holster to shoot Eldritch Blast. I'm sure there are other tabletop systems out there that might work better than reworking an entire game's aesthetic to match a new one, but if D&D is what you know and what you like, with a little work, it can be done. And by a little, I mean, like, a lot of work. You'd have to go through, like, every single spell and make sure it fits the setting. But still, don't let that deter you. I'd probably just reskin an entire campaign before learning a new tabletop system, too. So, I'm just saying, there's options. Aside from different classes, there are a couple other definitive things that could help reshape the aesthetic of spellcasting in your world. One of those definitive things is the spells level. You've got cantrips and you've got spell levels going from 1 through 9. If you wanted, you could say that magic is not a subtle thing in your world. That it creates these uh, very flashy, very obvious effects that can be observed. Kind of like uh, Doctor Strange when he does his fist thing and creates these arcane symbols that buzz and, and spark in midair. But it might not be every single spell that is cast, because there are some subtler magics that exist in D&D. You could rule that it's based on the spell's level, that maybe cantrips can be cast a little bit more subtly. Things like prestidigitation or thaumaturgy or uh, druidcraft can be done with the snap of a finger to shut those windows or put out those candles and things like that. Meanwhile, when a character casts a wish spell, it might totally disrupt the fabric of reality that surrounds the caster. It might be a really big deal, but it's important to kind of decide those ideas beforehand so you don't have to improvise what that looks like on the fly. And that could just be as easy as cantrips don't really disrupt much within, uh, within reality that can be observed, but levels... Uh, 1 to 3 of spellcasting are very minor, and 4 to 6 are a little bit more moderate, and those higher level spells, 7 to 9, are going to be extremely obvious and very disruptive. 
The other definitive element that is included with uh, spellcasting is what school that spell belongs to. There are all these schools of spellcasting. There's necromancy and uh, divination, illusion, evocation, um, and uh, these are off the top of my head, so I can't remember every single school of magic immediately. But you can create different rules per school of magic. I, I really hate that that rhymes, but uh, but you can create different rules uh, that are dependent on what school of magic that spell comes from. If it's a divination spell, maybe uh, there's a source of light. Maybe it comes from the the palms of the caster's hands, or uh, from above them, maybe there's a glow to their hair, or some other kind of otherworldly light that appears. Maybe when you cast an evocation spell, there's a residual dust or, or soot that comes off from the caster's hands or wherever they cast it from. With necromancy, maybe the surrounding vegetation, the flowers and grass, uh, wilt and die when a spell is cast in that area. And you could combine that with the idea of spellcasting levels that if a uh, necromantic cantrip is cast, there's not really much evidence that that spell was cast, but when a ninth level uh, spell that belongs to the school of necromancy is cast, there's a large field where withers have clearly uh, wilted and uh, been dehydrated and, and uh, withered away due to that necromantic energy affecting the, the, the real space in the material plane. If you want a, a certain class to stand out, uh, my example before was the wizard who doesn't cast in a traditional sort of way, but looks more like this bow-wielding mercenary who shoots these uh, magic arrows. But you could create rules dependent on each spellcasting class. All druids do a similar ritual when casting magic. All bards do a similar ritual when casting magic. All paladins, all clerics, they each have their own specific way. And you can break that up into what I had mentioned earlier with intelligence, charisma, and wisdom. I think those are the big factors of differentiating magic. But if you want to be very specific, you might have those intelligence casters cast similarly to each other, but also having their own varied uh, twist to how they actually cast. And the last definitive thing that I can really think of for spellcasting in 5e D&D is the utilization of material. Because you have uh, a lot of somatic elements and a lot of verbal elements, but you also have these material elements that come into play for some spells. What Wizards has done is you can either cast with a uh, focus, an arcane focus, I think, is for wizards. Wands, crystal orbs, staves, musical instruments are used for bards as their focus. You have uh, pieces of nature, like you and mistletoe, for druids as their spellcasting focus. Or you can choose to have material components. Uh, you can use a, a component pouch. If it doesn't cost anything... Uh, in actuality, you can have this component pouch rather than uh, grinding for different components like you're playing World of Warcraft or something. You don't have to kill a hundred bats to find the perfect bat wing to use with your spell. 
What Wizards doesn't clarify, though, is if there's any sort of difference between casting with uh, components or with different focuses, and that's where the work comes in for the DM to decide. Because I believe that it's not clarified anywhere. So not to pile more work onto the DM, but this just acts as an opportunity for more dynamic in the social aspects and perhaps political aspects of your world. In a world like that, what do the different classes look like? What do the different focuses and components look like? Because I have a strong feeling that a person who wields a staff or a wand would probably be viewed in a higher light than someone who is casting by using bat guano. I had this conversation with a friend of mine, and he put it uh, something like this. I really like the way that he stated it. He said that uh, the nobles and, and royalty who are able to spell cast uh, do so in a formal way with their wands and staffs, but the, the commoners, the, the people who are beneath them, have to scrounge through the dirt and the mud looking for these components. Uh, it's, it's, it's a peasant's magic, and it's looked down upon. You could use that in, in your world, that, that one way of casting magic looks better than another. I think that using uh, natural components and herbal components as opposed to an arcane focus or an arcane fixture also has this connotation of, of witchcraft to it. Witches around a cauldron uh, brewing potions and adding dashes of this and bits of that to create their spells and their magic. It has a uh, darker connotation to it, I think. As opposed to a lordly-looking figure wearing his clean, bright robes and waving a wand around regally. I think also uh, that something to consider is how do the characters in your world and in your campaign view spellcasters? If, uh, if magic is widely accepted, how do the common people, or really any of the characters in your campaign view the use of, of spellcasting and of magic. If it's a more whimsical setting, maybe nobody cares. Maybe when it's done, it's just sort of like seeing a magic trick. It, 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 uh, it's kind of cool to see, it's cool to watch, but otherwise it's not very impactful. What I think, though, is that magic would be a very scary and volatile thing. I think that with a lot of stories or TV shows where magic is introduced, it tends to be for a younger audience. And so magic doesn't have that same impact that I think it could carry. In the Harry Potter universe, you have all these uh, wizards and witches carrying around these wands, which allow them to cast their magic. And you have, uh, you have Death Eaters, who are not afraid to cast curses that can just straight up kill a person and split your soul in half. If magic has the ability to inflict this much pain, and in the D&D universe it does, you can cast fire bolts, you can cast fireballs, you can cast lightning bolts, you can cast all kinds of volatile and, and violent magic. And so pulling out a wand should carry the same weight 
an implication of pulling out any other weapon. I think that sometimes that is lost in a lot of um, campaigns because the idea is seems sort of silly. Someone is pulling out a uh, pulling out a stick and pointing it at you, but within these magical contexts, the implication is that they are pulling out something uh, just as dangerous as a crossbow, just as dangerous as uh, pointing their sword at their target. Except this is a sword that can shoot fire uh, from 90 feet away. It's like a Swiss army sword wand. And I think those are all the definitive uh, elements that Wizards has kind of gone through when creating the spell casting system. Uh, But those are a lot of different options to consider and to play with with your own campaign in your own world. Classes, spellcasting levels, schools of magic, the way each class would cast them. And if a spell is simply cast by speaking words and uh, waving your hands, or if an arcane focus or other type of focus is required, or material components that you have to scrounge around in the dirt looking for, and how magic is viewed by other characters in your world, both those who can cast magical spells and those who cannot. That's pretty much all I've got, folks, so it's time for the wrap-up. Even though it's easy to make magic the catch-all of how things work, try approaching it from a more scientific perspective. If you create hard narrative rules on how magic works in your world, your players will have more options when interacting with magical stuff. Explore the subtleties in how each class casts spells, because those small details can hold a lot of importance in the long run and make your campaign appear more cohesive. Collaborate with your players to find if they have specific ideas about how they'd like their character to cast spells. It may spark new ideas that you can carry over to other characters in your world. If there's no added difficulty for you, no new rules that need to be created, and no mechanical difference, some change to aesthetic could add something really special to your campaign. Whether that aesthetic is applied to one aspect, like a character, or the entire setting. But what really makes magic magical is when you think of new ways to spin it by continuing to think outside the dice. 